Welcome back to Mission 150. I'm David Trim. I'm Director of Archives, Statistics and Research for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm Sam Nevis, Associate Director of Communication for the World Church. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Sakupa. Since 2016, Dr. Sakupa has been Associate Director of the Ellen G. White Estate based in Silver Spring, Maryland. But he formerly taught theology and church history at Helderberg College in South Africa. Michael, welcome to Mission 150. Thank you. I'm happy to be here in this important 150th anniversary of missions. Michael, we talked with you in our previous episode about how the Adventist mission came to South Africa. Of course, it didn't stop in South Africa. It started to go further north into the territories north of that. Um, where did Adventist missionaries go next after they went to the what today is South Africa? And we should just explain again, when they arrived, there was no country of South Africa. That dates after the Anglo-Boer War. Um, so in the 1880s and 1890s, there are British colonies, there are independent Afrikaner republics. And then north of that, you have vast territories uh, that are still ruled over by indigenous black African rulers. Um, where, but taking South Africa as a region and what today we would call the Union of South Africa, where did they go after South Africa? I think there were a number of factors that led to that decision of where to go. Because as the territory of South Africa was expanding um, and also still included uh, many parts of Southern Africa, there was opportunity to explore taking the message further. And this time it went to Southern Rhodesia. Michael, Rhodesia is a word that is a, a name that will be familiar to some of our older viewers and listeners. Mm -hmm. To our younger viewers and listeners, they'll be saying, where is Rhodesia? So please tell us what Rhodesia was and what modern countries it included. Okay, Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia is the uh, current uh, Zimbabwe. And Northern Rhodesia would be Zambia today. So that so would be huge. You have a number of Southern Africa countries that are surrounding that territory, including Botswana. You have Malawi. Uh, Malawi you have Mozambique. All these are bordering Zimbabwe. So it's a locked, uh, a landlocked country that is bordering quite a number of countries. And there was, um, uh, uh, yes, there was uh, indigenous rule of kings and so on, but there was also a spreading of uh, colonial uh, rule as well. Right. And so Rhodesia actually is an example of private enterprise empire building because Cecil Rhodes, who makes a fortune from diamonds in South Africa and becomes the great imperial builder of the British Empire in Southern Africa, decides to expand north. Mm -hmm. And being a modest man, once he's conquered this absolutely vast territory, he names it after himself. Road, mm -hmm. Rhodes becomes Rhodesia. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a modest man who names such a vast territory after himself, but that was what Cecil Rhodes was like. Right. So this is... In the 1890s, this has just been acquired by the British through mm -hmm. conquest, through quite bloody wars against mm -hmm. the Indibeli and, and, and other peoples. Right. So here you have this vast territory to the north of South Africa. How did Adventist missionaries come to go into what was then southern Rhodesia and today is the country of Zimbabwe? How did Adventist missionaries come to go there? There was some contact uh, between 
Robinson, A.T. Robinson, and Cecil Rhodes. So just to remind our mm -hmm. listeners from, and viewers from last week, Asa mm -hmm. Robinson was the leader of the Adventist mission in South Af South Southern Africa. Africa. At the time, yes. So he contacts Rhodes and he... Which Rhodes, the, the rich guy? Cecil Rhodes, the rich guy, John Cecil Rhodes. Okay. And he wants land for mission um, uh, up north, especially in southern Rhodesia, which is known as Zimbabwe today. So this is really visionary because this yeah. is a territory that's only just come under British rule and mm -hmm. you've already got Robinson contacting Rhodes and saying... Mm -hmm. We want to send missionaries there. Mm -hmm. So that that's that's pretty visionary. Would you? Would you say? Yes. And and it seems there was uh, it was not just his own vision, but it was something that was collaborative because we have a wealthy uh, Peter Vessels involved in this, and, and they're gathering to, funds. We talked to, about Peter Vessels last week. Of yes. course, one of the men who appeals to the General Conference to send missionaries to South right. Africa, mm -hmm. and has. Is, is quite prosperous and affluent. Yes. And is a leading layman in the church. So they are gathering funds to uh, finance this endeavor and they are requesting for land. So John Cecil Rhodes uh, instructs Jemison, who was under him, to uh, provide the, the land that is required or is requested. So there's an interesting intersection here with wider history that mm -hmm. perhaps it will be, we can draw to the attention of our viewers and listeners. Leander Starr Jameson, who is Rhodes's agent in Rhodesia, yes. of course, later becomes infamous because he leads an attempted rebellion mm -hmm. in the Africana Republics, which becomes one of the causes of the Anglo-Boer War. Mm -hmm. So Jameson oh. is somebody who is, is significant in the wider history of South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and, but was he not also a doctor who had treated Peter Vessels? Yes. Mm -hmm. so, so there so was this connection there, there as well. So there was a, a, an old connection mm -hmm. between Jameson and Peter and Vessels. Peter Vessels. Right. So um, fascinating <laughs> stuff. Like the, the history of Adventism has a lot. It, we did not influence it in any way, but but there are connections there. Right, and, and, then, and Michael, can I, can I raise with you, um, isn't this a little disquieting? After all, you've got the, the British, and I'm British myself, but we, one can recognize the, the faults of one's ancestors. The British had just conquered this territory. Mm. Um, Rhodes had raised effectively a private army. The British, the British government didn't annex Rhodesia itself. Mm. Uh, which is why it gets called Rhodesia, because it's, it, Rhodes founds this entity called the British South African Company, mm -hmm. and it raises its own private army, but he, he takes it for Britain. Um, it's just conquered this vast territory through a very bloody campaign mm -hmm. with a lot of casualties amongst the indigenous Matabele or Undabele people. Mm -hmm. um, this is an example of colonialism and imperialism at its most brutal. Yeah. And here we have Adventists seeming to be complicit in colonialism by saying to the new imperial masters, give us the territory um, over whatever the wishes might be of the local people. Is, is, there, is there anything that Adventists should feel embarrassed about here? Well, um, I think in the interest of mission, one looks at the dynamics before this and looking at uh, South Rhodesia before uh, this land was seized you would find that um, it was a land that had kings, 
that was prosperous. They had minerals. They had all kinds of resources. They were trading with Indonesians, with Mozambicans. They were trading with people, uh, Swahili-speaking people from the up north. So the history of this area is very rich in terms of a well-established uh, king kingdom. Mm-hmm. But it was not easy to access with the gospel. And so this change opens up this opportunity where now uh, missionaries can be received. And so one finds um, the, uh, you know, the situation really, uh, you know, challenging where you have a colonial power taking over and then the Adventist church moves in and receives benefits from you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a very common uh, theme in mission, actually, in, mm-hmm. in, in all of Christian mission, mm-hmm. where the interests of either governments or kingdoms or nations or business yep. align with Christian um, evangelistic efforts. Mm-hmm. Right. So well, to the degree that they do align at the yeah. same time, you often have missionaries even well before Adventism, who are constantly the pain of empire. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because they're constantly pointing out the failures of empire. They're mm-hmm. constantly pointing out everything that they're doing wrong. So it's, mm-hmm. it's to the degree, to some degree, there is some alignment of their, of their motivations. Yes. And, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they're constantly butting heads because of their values. That's a really good point, Sam. And, and it's true. Missionaries are often complicit with colonial powers, but then they also become often its harshest critics. Immediately, mm-hmm. almost. Um, <laughs> so, and I think what we can say, Michael, is you know, Adventists tend to see providentialist explanations yeah. in a lot of places, mm-hmm. uh, many of which I believe, some of which I'm not so sure about. We sometimes it, it's, we see it in retrospect mm-hmm. and we perhaps align things that aren't there. What I would say is I don't believe that God willed or purposed the conquest of Zimbabwe by in this brutal way by the British South Africa Company, mm-hmm. but God was, and the Seventh Day Adventist Church were willing to make the most of the opportunity that it presented. Mm-hmm. God works through humans and and their sins mm-hmm. and their things that probably appall our Father in heaven, mm-hmm. but God works through that and says, right, what can I, you know, what can be done to maximize the opportunity? Mm-hmm. We see this in our own lives. How many of us have gone? through some kind of tragedy, be it an accident or male- the result of someone's malevolence against us. Yeah. And then God takes that and makes the most of it in our own lives. Yes. I think that that's usually the case. But mm. Vessels, or was it Vessels that writes the letter? Uh, Robinson. Van, Van Druten. No, no to, Van Druten. To, to, to Rhodes. To, to Rhodes. Rhodes. It was Robinson. Okay, so Robinson, Robinson writes, he yeah. sees the opportunity and yes. says, hey, there, there may but be Vessels a way. Vessels is involved as well. Vessels is involved as well. He's uh, involved in the funding uh, of right. the, the new mission uh, that is being uh, envisioned. And he travels to uh, South Rhodesia, known as Zimbabwe today, with uh, uh, Sparrow. Uh, and and also other uh, what people. What was Sparrow's first name? Uh, Peter Sparrow. Peter Sparrow. Yes. And actually, Sparrow. The Sparrows. There's a there's a whole family yes. of Sparrows who are very involved. I know there's, there's a Chris Sparrow who's involved as well. Yes. So the Sparrows become a leading family in Adventist mission in Southern Africa. Right. Mm-hmm. Michael, just to get, well, actually, just to get from 
from Cape Town to Kimberley or to Pretoria or Johannesburg is a journey of several days on a yes. train. Mm -hmm. There's no railway yet that goes up to Bulawayo, mm -hmm. which is where they go in, mm -hmm. uh, still exists today, of course, today is a modern city. Mm -hmm. um, what does it take to send a party of missionaries from the northern part of Southern Africa to Bulawayo? You said Vessels is one of those yes. who travels. How many people go up and what sort of time span are we talking about to actually get there? Well, uh, we're talking 700 uh, miles wow. on ox uh, wagons. Wow. So, this so is, you can imagine this how is long. Sort of like, this is sort of like American pioneers going across west with ox carts and, yes. and covered wagons, yes. but you're having to travel 700 miles. Mm -hmm. So, so they take this trip uh, and that's just for, to and explore. That's, that's, from the, that's from where? From Kimberley? This is actually, they take a train from Cape Town to Freiburg in, in South Africa, which is up north. And then from there, they take the wagons, ox wagons, another, another 700 miles, miles to uh, wow. South Rhodesia, where this site was. And how many missionaries went in that first party? Um, we know two names, Vessels and uh, Sparrow, but the other uh, uh, people that were in the party are not really mentioned by name. Would some of those have been Afri black Africans? Probably not. I would, I would not think there were some black Africans at this time, because remember, they were still focused on developing the, the work in South Africa right. at this time. Right. And what is interesting, though, <clears throat> is that I was invited to come and preach in Zimbabwe, and during uh, the preparations, I was told I'll be speaking to the Kosa people, which is a tribe from South Africa. And I wondered, are they Kosa-speaking people in Zimbabwe? And they told me yes. And in interviewing uh, these families, they told me how they were brought into South Rhodesia back then, their ancestors at least, uh -huh. were brought in by Cecil Rhodes. And the main... To be servants, uh, perhaps? No. No? They oh, were teachers. As teachers? They were, yeah. you know, merchants. So they were there to bring development uh, into uh, Rhodesia, South Rhodesia. In, in <clears> the history of Brazil that I'm more familiar with, the Portuguese had to fill the land and make it productive and, and create these communities. Otherwise, they would have lost the land to the... To, to the surrounding nations or the Spanish at least. Yes. So, so I, I'm, I'm seeing some of those themes of, mm -hmm. okay, you conquered the land, but in order to keep it, mm -hmm. you need to develop it and you right. need to have people yeah. that consider it a home. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, mm -hmm. and the majority speaking people in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe are the, the Ndebele? Ndebele and Shona. And Shona. Yes. So right. Shona land was uh, a big area and also you have uh, in Bulawayo where the work begins is mostly Ndebele. Right. That's where Solusi is about 35 miles from right. Bulawayo. So vessels and this other, this party and, and Sparrow mm -hmm. trek north for, with their ox wagons, yes. a journey which must have taken them many, many days, mm -hmm. many weeks, in fact. Yes. And then they get to Bulawayo, which is where Dr. Jameson, Cecil Rhodes' colonial agent is. Yes. What happens next? And then they are... Um, given this 12,000 acre land. But there's a great story here, if, yes. if I recall, that yes. they actually, Vessels goes into Jameson mm -hmm. and starts and gives him Rhodes's letter and he starts talking about what they want. Right. And um, 
and Je if I remember correctly, Michael, correct you know, correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong. Jameson sort of says, well, you know, well, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And Vessel says, well, what has Rhodes told told you? And and he says, I've told you to give as much land as you want. Mm -hmm. Rhodes has because that Rhodes has written this letter, and Vessels has carried it the whole way, of course, mm -hmm. but it's sealed. Uh -huh. You don't want to mess with the the you know the most important man's mail. So he right. gives it to Jameson and discovers that Rhodes has actually instructed Jameson to give the Adventists as much right. land as they want. And so right. at that point, Vessels, you know, he could have been thinking small. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. He could have been timid. He mm -hmm. could have been a little, well, what, but instead God actually prompts him perhaps mm -hmm. to think mm -hmm. big, doesn't yes. he? So it's yes. 12,000 acres. Acres of land. And uh, unfortunately, when this offer is given, uh, the information is sent to the general conference. Should we receive this gift or grant of land? And the response is very uh, challenging because there is controversy over this. Because it's oh. partly because this is, Adventists are very concerned about separation of church, of church and, state, and state. Yes, And here they are receiving land from the new British state that's mm -hmm. been set up. Mm -hmm. Oh, So what? tell us more about that controversy. So um, this uh, controversy is basically on the issue whether they should receive this or not. Uh, whether we are in principle when it comes to church and state uh, matters. So uh, discussions go both ways. And Ellen White uh, counsels from Australia this yes, time, yes. Yeah. This land should be received. And she uh, supports the idea of receiving this land grant for our mission. Main, our main mode of communication among all of us at the time was the what we call today the Adventist Review. Yes. Is this where these letters are being sent and analyzed or are these private letters that are going to everyone involved? This particular debate, I, I think I it think is just among church leaders. Among church leaders. Church leaders. Yes. 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 And it is debated again among church leaders whether this, this last because be. it takes months for letters to go back and forth. Well, the point is that the land was received. Okay. And so the debate goes on. The story ends well. <laughs> so, so Vessels takes the land. He takes the land. Church leaders debate whether they, debate they should. debate whether it should, should be. <laughs> but he's already taken. He's already taken the land. All right. Because, you know, the story uh, is that the, the work begins. But unfortunately, and this also is another factor, uh, there is a war that breaks out just on the uh, arrival of the missionaries because Vessels um, receives the land and he leaves and he goes back to South Africa, Leave leaving Sparrow, Sparrow in, charge. Yeah. in charge of the farm development and they're expecting missionaries to come. So I think the sending of missionaries does not take very long, which means the matter was settled probably because of the influence that Ellen White weighed into the matter. Right. Yeah. And so what's the war that you said there's a war that breaks out? That's uh, amongst with the that's the British with the indigenous people, presumably. Yes, this is the Matabele uh, rebellion right. that breaks out. And so with this war, they, uh, and this, this actually comes after the, the missionaries have just arrived because Vessels leaves with some of the team and he leaves only Sparrow. And so Sparrow goes to meet the new missionaries that have been assigned and they come, and as they come and as they arrive at this new land, war, war breaks out. And so, uh, so, so this is an uprising of the local people yes, who have been against, dispossessed perhaps, against yeah. the Rhodesian uh -huh. government. Yes. Oh. 
they they then begin they they get a security escort to Solusi because they had uh, you know uh, the vessels and the team just built uh, three huts presumably mud huts and so Solusi tell us what Solusi is because we haven't covered that yet. Uh, Solusi is the uh, uh, the land where... That Jameson has given to vessels. Yes, that's right. And so the 12,000 acre land that is given to... So they go to a place called Solusi mm -hmm. and that's where they start their That's where their they start their work. And so as they start the work uh, and, and Vessels is, has left and uh, uh, Sparrow meets the missionaries who come uh, from America to start the work and then war breaks out. So uh, they are escorted to Bulawayo to find some uh, help and shelter. And then they could not even afford a hotel accommodation there. It was just too expensive because of the war. And so uh, they uh, put up in the wagons. Uh, in their ox wagons? In their ox wagons. Wow. So you have four families, the doctor, Carmichael, and you have other uh, missionary families, including Sparrow, and they put up in the wagons, they share a wagon. Some, even W.H. Anderson with his family were under the wagon. Oh, wow. Right. W.H. Anderson, by the way, becomes a legendary name in Adventist mission in Africa, and so yes. he's one of the first party of missionaries that goes after they've acquired Seleucia, is that right? Right, 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 right. So times are difficult, challenging uh, for the missionaries at this time because of the war. And it extends for months and they are under shelter and waiting for uh, a way to get back to their mission station. But uh, for months they are stuck there and um, there is a record that uh, during their stay there, it was actually between 1896 and 1897, the whole year that this was uh, going on. And uh, Anderson and uh, uh, Sparrow take turns to go to the, uh, the, 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 the farm. Seleucia. Seleucia. And it's a walk, 35-mile walk. And he has to get some, some supplies there that they can find. Um, I don't know what they left, but probably some, uh, some food or whatever they can find as supplies. So they go at night because they can't go during the day. It's too risky. Wow. And they, whoever goes, as they take turns, stays for uh, a week and then comes back uh, walking because they can't afford to even travel with the means that they had then. So it was difficult and challenging times through the war that the missionaries went through. So one finds Did a sacrifice. Did any of them die? Uh, not at this stage. Okay. They, they survive and they are able to go back. And, after, start, to, and start to put things in place at Seleucia. And start putting things in place at Seleucia. Right. So and this is, it's fascinating, the connections. This episode, we're seeing a lot of connections between Adventist history and wider history, especially imperial, British imperial yeah, history with right. the war. So they faced the danger of war, but didn't they also face the danger of disease? Yes. And the first thing that actually happens is that as they return, there is disease on their cattle. Uh, their cattle all die. And of course, they About 200 the, cattle. They're, they're setting, 
what they're doing, and we should probably explain this for mm -hmm. our listeners and viewers, they're not just setting up a mission station, they're setting up an agricultural concern, yes. partly to sustain themselves, mm -hmm. but partly also because Adventists like to teach people to be self-sufficient. Right. And this is where Adventists are departing from the colonial mindset. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. British would would oh, like the point. would like the local people to be kept in subjection. Mm -hmm. But Adventists, wherever we go, mm -hmm. train people in modern agricultural techniques. Right. Partly because many of them are farmers from America, and they do it. But they also they don't just do it because they don't. You know, this is what they do, mm -hmm. and they don't know what else to do. They do it because they want to teach people to be self sufficient, mm -hmm. and they they're going to teach them to read. They're going mm -hmm. to teach them to write so that they can mm -hmm. teach them the scriptures. Um, and you know, we've lost sight today of how, uh, of how subversive these activities are. If you're a colonial power or if you're a, a local white landowner or in somewhere like Peru where Ferdinand Stahl works, and we'll talk about him in a future episode, if you're the local landowners who are trying to oppress the Indians, for all of these people to teach indigenous people to read and write, to teach them math agriculture, history. yes, math history, to teach them agricultural techniques so that they can be self-supporting, to teach mm -hmm. them trades and mm -hmm. techniques. This is deeply subversive stuff. Adventists, we like to think of ourselves, and we are in many ways, sort of small C conservatives, mm -hmm. keeping out of trouble. But actually, Adventists, wherever we go, do things that in the light of secular powers, would be seen as subversive. This is where the colonial values and the missionaries' values did not align. Absolutely exactly. not. No, exactly. absolutely not. So because there's development happening as you develop education, which was kind of the main thrust of our mission uh, work. Yeah. Uh, people are, are, are developed in their understanding and also uh, in terms of skills. Yeah. They learn skills. But so for this reason, to have all the cattle die, mm is a big blow. Sure. It is, because they were depending on these cattle and to actually even uh, trade as they, you know, yeah, yeah, as yeah. the their uh, collection of cattle grows, but now it's all gone. But the missionaries don't leave. Hmm. They stay. And they continue uh, trying to work uh, the land and in, the, in the best possible ways. Um, but again, another crisis hits. Now, this time, it is malaria. Ugh. Right. And as malaria hits... Something for which Westerners don't have a cure at that yes, stage. at that time. There were some medic medication options that were not so good. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was available. And so as this uh, deadly scourge of malaria ravages through the land, the missionaries are infected, Ugh. all of them. And uh, unfortunately, uh, many of them die. And today we have graves of those missionaries at Sulusi University, which is a sign of sacrifice of life and also, uh, you know, mission work. And I really pause a moment here to really thank God for the tenacity, the uh, passion that these missionaries had for God's work. They could have turned back and said, let's go home, it's over. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a cure for this, but they remain, they stay, they continue. And we owe a lot uh, to these missionaries uh, who succumbed to malaria 
Dr. A. S. Carmichael uh, died in 1898. G. B. Tripp, a week later, his young son uh, uh, on April 2, 1898. Yes, so it's, it's George Tripp and George Tripp Jr. who dies a week later and they're buried in graves in the same cemetery. You yes, can still see that. Absolutely. Here's George B. Tripp Sr. and here's George B. Tripp Jr. Yeah, and it's on just the same a week year. Later. With, same year. Just within a week, George Tripp Jr. dies a week later. Yeah. And then we have others who go to South Africa to seek cure and help, and they also arrive at Kimberley, but they died there in Kimberley. They were, they were too ill. They were too ill uh, to survive. Who, do you so, have their names as well? Uh, yes, you have uh, Mrs. F.B. Amitage and F.L. Mead, uh, who died two and a half years later in right. Kimberley. So we should acknowledge their sacrifice. Yes. And I think that's right to do yes. so. The work was challenging, dangerous, but the missionaries continue their, their work. Those at least that remain, um, uh, W.H. Anderson. That's a big name in terms of uh, continuing the, the work of mission, spreading even uh, from Solusi further into other parts of, uh, of Africa. So to be a, an early missionary in Zimbabwe was dangerous. It was a dangerous uh, mission, yes. Right. You could lose, you, you could very easily, a whole number of people lost their lives. And what is interesting is that they were aware of the dangers. They saw it coming. And they still went. But they stayed and mm. continued the mission work. Which is humbling. Mm. Um, but what was their impact? The impact later on was uh, really seen in the development of the work, which came slowly because they uh, focused on developing the missions. So W.H. Anderson developed and helped develop the mission uh, at Solusi and then we moved on to um, Zambia, then the northern Rhodesia. And that's where uh, he established another mission, uh, mission field. And again, there another story of how uh, the land was given. They came to a chief or king, and uh, the chief said, how much land do you want? Um, they were not sure how much, and so he said, just take a walk, and that would be your land. <laughs> Can you imagine? So this time they negotiate with the indigenous ruler yes, directly, yes. Right? they're not seizing it no, through no, the British government. Yeah, yeah. For them to receive such land, they must have had some level of trust with these people. You don't just turn up to or write a letter and, and mm. all of a sudden mm. out of nowhere. Mm. They say, absolutely. You mm. take a walk, whatever your feet touch, that will be <laughs> yours. I mean, that, that's of a, of a biblical proportion yes. story, which actually this, this uh, reminds me uh, about something. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul stays a little bit of time in each place, some places mm -hmm. longer than others, mm -hmm. but he quickly moves on. There are a few mm -hmm. people uh, worshiping. He spends a few years in, some, in Corinth and Ephesus. Ephesus, mm -hmm. two years, Corinth, a, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. yeah. These missionaries are spending one year here, two years there. So mm -hmm. it, it's in some weeks, some, some places he spends, mm -hmm. you know, weeks and months, it seems. Yeah. But it's not a decade. No. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, 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 right. It's not a, a long period of time, and then he moves on. Right. The but work what, seems to spread faster. But, but he leaves people behind. He leaves yes. people like Epaphroditus, Titus, mm -hmm. Timothy, mm -hmm. and they then stay there yeah. for mm -hmm. Or even Luke in Philippi, who, you know, in the book of Acts, Luke, you, you get the first, first person narrative Luke's talking about, and then it stops because 
Luke has, has stayed in Philippi. Mm. And it's, it must be a good five or six years later that suddenly Luke starts writing in the first person again uh -huh. mm. uh, because Paul has passed back through Philippi and picked him up. So, mm. um, and I think where you're going with this, Sam, is that this is, you know, this is the key for the early missions in Africa. Mm. People don't just stay for a year. Mm -hmm. They go and invest long periods. They invest their lives, mm. actually, their life's work yes. into these missions in Sulusi mm -hmm. and other parts of what is now Zimbabwe and Zambia and yeah. Malawi. Right. But they also expand. They give their life to the mission work, but they go to, as Michael put it, to other parts from there. Mm -hmm. They go here and they go there, they go there. And that takes a, a certain level of trust in the people that you've just discipled. Yes. Yeah. I like what you're saying about trust, uh, Sam, because the, uh, the level of trust is also built because of the people that go with a missionary. Because you have indigenous people who are part of the mission team. Sure. And they're going with a missionary and they know the language, they know the people, and they begin to speak the same language. And this has weight because there are people that have embraced this uh, truth and this message within this region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And therefore, there's a level of trust that is built that these people can be trusted, especially when you look at the political situation yes. at the time, that they're not coming in to, you know, uh, take away things, but they're coming here to, give. to develop and, and to, to give. help. And, and to help, help. yes. Uh -huh. And so Adventists, the missionaries, learn the local languages and they adapt to the local culture. Yeah. So this is what today we would call contextualization, right? which is sometimes seen as a recent thing, but actually it's there from an early stage. And I appreciate what uh, the Encyclopedia of Adventists has done in terms of bringing up the, these uh, missionaries, indigenous missionaries, uh, and citing their names and giving background to who they were. Right. That they were not just, you know, uh, people uh, without background, but they, they were, you know, people with names and they contributed also in this. So this is a very important, the trust I think was built yeah. because of this partnership that was yeah. there and let's just, with the locals. Let's just f tell you where you can find some of these stories. Michael mm -hmm. wrote, mentioned the encyclopedia. It's the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists and it's available online at encyclopedia.adventist.org. That's encyclopedia.adventist.org. But those stories you're talking about, Michael, remind us the missionaries are crucial because they take the truth there. They take mm -hmm. the third angel's message there. Mm -hmm. But the missionaries can't do all the work themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we talked about this in a previous episode in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And it's the local indigenous people who become converted yes. who actually start to really expand mm -hmm. the work. Is that right? That's right. Because it is these people who uh, begin now to go out to communities and churches are built. And also other missions are developed from Sulusi as uh, the first and base uh, mission. So we have a lot of other missions developing from there. And W.H. Anderson played a very important role in developing uh, mission work. So he's not so much a church planter as a mission station yes, planter. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was a pastor in London for 11 years, mm -hmm. and I had the privilege of pastoring many Zimbabweans. Mm. In fact, there are thousands of Zimbabweans now in London hmm. or in, in England altogether in the mm -hmm. United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Clearly, their work 
has grown exponentially in the country of Zimbabwe. Yes. Yes. Just in, in Zambia, mm -hmm. the proportion of Adventists in Zambia to the population is, is huge. The ratio is, is a very small it, ratio, which means there are many Zimbabwe Adventists. too, it's, it's like mm -hmm. 8 or 9, maybe 10% in Zimbabwe mm -hmm. and Zambia are Seventh-day right. Adventists. Mm -hmm. Whereas most places, 0.1% mm. is, is, is good, mm -hmm. and yet there it's, uh, it's a hundredfold that, mm -hmm. yeah. that, 9 or 10%. Well, let me mention something about the, um, the way, uh, you know, it started and how the trust was developed because it, it did not start too good when you see, um, you know, Adventists coming in at a crisis like that when, you know, colonialists are moving in. Right. And Adventists also benefit and they move in. Mm -hmm. So one would think that this probably would have dented the, uh, you know, the growth of the church and the mission and the perspective people have. The people wouldn't local have, people have. People wouldn't have trusted them. Yes, but right. you see how uh, Adventists build that trust through the work and education, health, and in many other areas of mission, where people begin to say, "Well, these people are here for us." They're you know, developing us there. And so right now uh, in the Zimbabwe government, Adventists enjoy a very high regard hmm. by the government to the extent that the education structure of the church is supported very highly by, by government. Wow. And so uh, while this is not the ideal where even teachers are supported financially, but the Adventists are, are given latitude to practice as Adventists with no interference mm. from government. So this is showing the level of trust that has been developed over the years that has really contributed to the, to the growth of the church. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. But Sam, you were going to make a point about Zimbabweans outside Zimbabwe, I think. Yes. Um, they are, the, the Zimbabweans that have come to London, mm -hmm. the Adventist ones, they're highly educated. They're yes. very passionate about the mission of the church. Mm -hmm. They take the gospel very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I've had the privilege to pastor many of them. Um, do you think there is a, there is a, a, a new wave of missionaries mm -hmm. that have received the gospel, kept it to, the, to a degree pure as, as much as they could, mm -hmm and are now being sent by, directly by God or because of circumstances mm -hmm. to other parts of the world where the missionaries once came from mm -hmm. in order to inspire them once again. Mm -hmm. Do you see that parallel? Tell me more about that. That's a very interesting perspective, Sam, because I see uh, everywhere in Europe and even here in America, a number of Zimbabwean churches and also in the international churches, you find Zimbabweans everywhere. Okay. So, which means they've become uh, missionaries after receiving the, the message uh, through, you know, the missionaries who came to Africa. Now they are missionaries like William Hunt was. Right, where we talked they about are working. Time. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. they are out working, but they are doing witnessing through uh, in, the work, in the workplace, and whatever they're doing, but they are witnesses yeah. and the church is growing that way. That's absolutely yeah. beautiful. Michael, thank you for joining us in this podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll come back again. Certainly I did. And thank you so much for the work of bringing back these memories of mission work uh, over the 150 years. Yes. 
Well, thanks again for you joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite uh, social platform or podcast platform as you see fit. If you have enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Now, maybe you want to know more about Adventist missionary work. Just go ahead and visit AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities, go to vividfaith.com. Let me tell you just a little bit about Vivid Faith. If you are an Adventist organization, if you represent or work in an Adventist organization and you can create mission opportunities, we have a huge problem right now. We have too many missionaries that want to go and not enough people calling them to work there. So if you can help with that ratio, create mission opportunities, people will find their way to you. Vividfaith.com is the place that you register. We'll be back next week with more on inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Mm -hmm.